0: O God, from whom all good doth come, grant that by Thy inspiration we may think those things that are right, and by Thy merciful guiding may perform the same, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with Thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And um, I love when I put something together, and uh, you might call it God's providence. I just like to say the word serendipity, because it sounds nice. Um, and it just meshes well with other things that are going on. I've been thinking about teaching on the topic of heresies um, for several months, and then last weekend was Trinity Sunday, which lends itself well to the topic. And then right now, also starting last week and for several weeks in the lectionary, we have readings from Galatians. And there um, are places throughout Scripture, especially in Paul's epistles, where he addresses false teaching, but Galatians really is a a letter that really focuses on addressing uh, false teaching and not much else. And here is a reading that uh, partly from last week and partly from this week, from chapter one. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting uh, him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For, now seeking the appro- I am, uh, for am I now seeking the approval of man, of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, I won't comment on that too much, but hopefully it sort of sets some scriptural framework to the discussion. Uh, if we need more seating, there's some chairs stacked right there. Um, there's one more handout, so all ten of you need to share it. Uh, or if you have one out there in the, the seats and you're sitting with the spouse and you both have a copy or something, maybe you can share. Um, well, the topic is uh, heresy. How many came to the first section? Just a few of you. Well, um, that's fine because I always try to teach sort of like stand alone, but I am drawing a little bit from... There's one seat right there and there's a stack over there if you want to... Uh, Pull some out. Or if you just want to stand against the wall, that's fine. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Last time, I brought in um, a book by a former bishop of South Carolina, Fitzsimmons Allison. He and I used to live in the same city. He was a member of a church where I was uh, ordained. He ordained me a priest, even though he was retired. Um, And he wrote this book called The Cruelty of Heresy, An Affirmation of Christian Orthodoxy. And what Fitz says, and he gets this from a guy named uh, William uh, Porcher de Bose, who was an um, Anglican theologian a while back, uh, long dead. Uh, he set up a distinction between two camps of heresy. Heresy means uh, wrong opinion, um, and and there's a, that's a charged word. A lot of people don't like to sort of throw that around. That came up last time. I'll sort of address that. But basically, what Fitz um, says in the book, getting from William Porsche to Bose, there are all these different heresies out there. Maybe you've heard the names, but you could sort of delineate most wrong teaching into one of two camps, uh, adoptionism or docetism. And um, there are some areas of overlap with some things out there in the world, and we'll talk about that today with a concept called moralistic therapeutic deism. But adoptionism was an early church teaching that Jesus Christ was not uh, the eternally begotten Son of God, as John 1 says, but he was just a, a normal everyday bloke, you know, born of uh, of Mary and Joseph, and he led a righteous life. And when he was about thirty, he was so righteous, God said, "That's my man," you know, like Neo in Matrix or Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, you know, the Chosen One, because you you've led such a good life that he was adopted. At his baptism, that he received the Holy Spirit at his, ba- at his baptism, and wasn't uh, and therefore God is just God the Father and not God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, uh, and so Jesus wasn't a part of a Trinity, but was like the most divine person. He became divine at his baptism, and the early church said, no, that's wrong. That goes against the teaching of Scriptures, and the problem with adoptionism is it sort of it, it, it lends itself to teachings of moralism. Uh, now, morality is fine in terms of ethics and things like that, but mission creep sets in and we turn into legalists, and moralism is problematic because it basically says that you need to earn God's love through your righteousness, just as Jesus did. And I brought up last time that WWJD is kind of adoptionism. What would Jesus do? Um, sorry to burst your bubble if you go around saying that. The early church would have said that's kind of a heresy, um, So, adoptionism. And so many other things are like that in our world. And the other one is docetism. And docetism um, basically comes from the Greek word that means to seem, that something seems. And what they meant is that Jesus Christ on the cross seemed to suffer. He didn't actually suffer because he wasn't fully human. Uh, And so when he was up there saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I thirst. He wasn't actually suffering. He was sort of putting on a show. He was pulling your leg. Um, And someone brought this up rightly that the the Muslim teaching about Jesus Christ is kind of docetic because it says that in the Quran that um, Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. They slipped him out and put Simon of Cyrene up there. Um, so that's kind of a docetic teaching. Because, uh, and so, because Greeks, you know, the Greek mind couldn't fathom the idea of a fully incarnate, fully human uh, God who would suffer a human death. The problem with that is what? There's no atonement. There's no, I mean, you, 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 you're, there's no forgiveness of sins through, through that sort of death. It's just, a, again, sort of a, a an example, uh, an object lesson, or just saying like um, uh, you know that uh, he was he he was killed for his teachings, but not killed for any reason that has something to do uh, with forgiveness of sins, reconciliation <coughs> with God. And a lot of things are docetic to seem uh, to the, 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 the basically the docetic teachings are ones of escape and escapism, and you can say that with. Uh, teachings from the sort of 19th century, post-enlightenment, a lot of things that we were up against in the Christian church were more adoptionistic, uh, because there were a lot of teachings about Unitarianism uh, and whatnot, and you still hear a lot about that these days, but we've we've moved further and further into a worldview that is increasingly docetic, with New Age movements, Um, or I'm going to say this tonight in my sermon at 5 o'clock, just listen to any commencement speech out there, you know, um, uh, that um, basically tell you things like, look inside yourself for the answer, uh, just be true to yourself, or yada, yada, yada. So anyway, that's sort of a helpful distinction, I think, because there are so many different nuances to the history of heresy and different names that if all you know is adoptionism and docetism, um, you can start to identify things that look like it. Well, someone brought up last time. Well, uh, um, well, that's not nice to call people uh, heretics. I totally get it. I wouldn't want to be called a heretic, right? I've, I've actually been called that. Um, uh, we probably you stick. Sorry, you stick around long enough, and you'll be called. You'll be called out on the carpet by somebody, you know. And so I've handed out a. a um, a uh, a photocopy from Fitz's book, The Cruelty of Heresy, um, where he gets at this a little bit. So if you look at page 18, um, that first um, page after the title page there, any um, any attempt to affirm orthodoxy and criticize heresy goes sharply against the modern trend. Many today firmly regard orthodoxy as dull, unimaginative, defensive, stultifying and rigid, whereas heresy is bold, imaginative, innovative, and creative. Of course, there is some truth in this view. Defenders of orthodoxy have been at times both dull and cruel. Heretics have sometimes been exceedingly selfless and sincere in their beliefs, often with a tenacious grasp of the partial truth within their teaching, while blind to its context or its wider implications. But the other side is true, too. Some heretics were singularly stubborn, narrow, repressive, and cruel, while many Orthodox were uh, cr- courageous, selfless, and magnanimous. Uh, I know well. he likes these $10 words. Uh, often um, suffering ostracism, exile, and death. And if you skip ahead, another thing um, I want to read to you, and maybe this will be the last bit from from what Fitz has to say, starting on page 20, that paragraph that starts, however, he's getting at the cruel, the, what he's basic his thesis is that heresy is cruel, pastorally speaking. It does damage to people. Um, and uh, so that's what he's kind of getting at here. Before we disregard them, let us look carefully at what is being put in their place. Let us consider the practical and pastoral implications of, old, of the old heresies now being dressed up to suit the modern mind. The boundaries that save the Christian faith from being absorbed into pagan religion and from degenerating into a mere linguistic sect were and are far too valuable to be dismissed, ignored, jettisoned, or hidden away in an academic ghetto. Whereas successful heresies become new orthodoxies, so orthodoxy tends to drift into heresy. When the creeds are accepted as correct or orthodox, almost immediately orthodox behavior begins to demand assent to the creeds rather than yes to the God to whom the creeds point. And thus, a new heresy is born from, quote, correct orthodoxy. This fact can appear to justify all the negative connotations of the word orthodoxy. Teaching and ideas have consequences. The fundamental reason for distinguishing between heresy and orthodoxy is the question of truth. The contemporary flight from questions of truth, especially in matters of belief, is disclosed and critiqued by Leslie Newbingen. The relativism, which is not uh, willing to speak about truth but only about, quote, what is true for me, is an evasion of the serious business of living, It is the mark of a tragic loss of nerve in our contemporary culture. It is a preliminary symptom of death. If a teaching is wrong opinion rather than right opinion, the uh, consequences are cruel. The Christian faith is distorted, and people who follow these teachings are hurt. Ignoring the pastoral implications of the councils renders the studies of the councils virtually irrelevant. But these councils were then and are now uh, most decisively important to test whether current teachings were wrong, heretical, or right, orthodox. Well, there you have it. I mean, basically what I'm getting at and, and through what Fitz is addressing is he's, he's recognizing that these terms uh, are helpful, uh, they're very helpful... But they also have limitations, and they've been tossed around, both her- heresy and orthodoxy. And when he refers to councils, by the way, that's like the Council of Nicaea, Constantinople, Jerusalem, which is an Acts, uh, I mean, in the Bible, there was a, there's your first early church council right there in the Bible, and it's referred to in Galatians chapter 2, we'll have next week. Um, these councils were gatherings of uh, leaders, primarily bishops, who decided whether or not something was right or wrong teaching together. Uh, and that's how we got things like the Nicene Creed came out of the early church councils to have a distillation of what Trinitarian Orthodoxy is and who, who Jesus Christ was as both fully man and fully God. And and Fitz is saying that outside of those foul lines, uh, there's a lot of Christianity and it's cruel um, because it... Uh, affects our, uh, who we are as people uh, in terms of our salvation. And it, it sort of gets at the heart in ways that might sound nice on the surface, but when you take them to their final point, you realize, like, this is an empty set. Um, but uh, the reason I'm really interested in the topic of heresy is because a lot of the noise, the white noise that's out there in the world, um it's feeding uh, us a sort of worldview that uh, makes it difficult to get the gospel across. I feel like that the thing that I'm most often up against in terms of being a Christian, first of all, but also uh, a minister who tries to preach, teach, and write about the Christian message, is that it's... Um, It runs in the face of uh, so much of what's out there in the world. And that's always been the case. I mean, it was the case in the times of the Bible and in the early church. And we have so much to learn by how they were wrestling with these things and to try to apply them to modern day. And so, whereas last time I set up the framework of adoptionism and docetism, today I want to talk to you about a theory called moralistic... Therapeutic Deism. (laughs) Are you staying with me here? I know I'm trying to keep it simple. But, um, and you'll get it hopefully by the end, because we'll talk about MTD, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism, um, over and over again. What does that mean? There uh, was a, a longitudinal study done by some scholars in the early 2000s where they uh did phone uh surveys at random thousands of participants of youth teenagers and their families asking them questions about their spiritual and religious lives across the board not just Christians but atheists um Christians Jewish Mormon Muslim Buddhist Hindu etc uh to to have a, 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 an accurate understanding of what Um, the uh, faith lives look like of teenagers. And the reason why the scholars thought this was important to do is, by understanding the the spiritual and religious lives of teenagers, you have a pretty good litmus test of what all of us believe, (laughs) because they're basically absorbing what we're teaching them. Uh, And after they did the um, phone surveys with thousands of participants, they did more in-depth interviews with random samples across the nation and most states, in person interviews, so it 's really exhaustive, and then they pr- produced this book called "Soul Searching," which is like five hundred pages: the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers for a scholarly work it's actually ex- it 's relatively accessible, but because um, most people aren't going to read the book, they helpfully developed uh, a documentary which i 'm going to play a, a, a clip from <laughs> uh, but I did, I did um, photocopy the um, section, if you s- skip over a couple pages, where there, you see the title page of Soul Searching, um, page 162. <laughs> it takes 162 pages into the book to get to, to what I think is the gem that most people have been talking about in the decades since this study came out, uh, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism to describe the de facto sort of creed of teenagers in the United States. Now, they say this, and I'll read it to you. Basically, no teenagers going around, saying, if you say, like, what's your religion? I'm a moralistic, therapeutic deist. Uh, No, it's it's just a description of what uh, things look like. So if you go down toward the bottom of 162 under a summary interpretation, halfway in that paragraph, there's the sentence that starts, Here we attempt... Here we attempt to summarize our observations by venturing a general thesis about teenage religion and spirituality in the United States. We advance our thesis somewhat tentatively as uh, less than a conclusive fact but more than mere conjecture. We suggest that the de facto dominant religion among contemporary U.S. teenagers is what we might call moralistic therapeutic deism. The creed of this religion is codified from what emerged from our interviews sounds something like this. One, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Five, God, uh, good people go to heaven when they die. Um, so that, those, those are the, after all this exhaust, exhaustive research, that was the pattern that identified in the types of language that people use, teenagers, to describe their spirituality or religion across religions, across denominations. It kind of sounded something like this. Now you might read this and say, well, I, I believe that's, that sounds uh, great. Um, Well, I'm here to burst your bubble, um, because that is not, I mean, it it sounds nice. It sounds nice. It sounds a a, a lot like American civil religion, which they get at later in the chapter. I have photocopied that for you. But it doesn't sound an awful lot like the uh, the crudely orthodox Christian faith that you find in the Bible. Um, And and they go to argue that basically this sort of Creed here or this um, operating religion is helpful for um, um, social cohesion because you can kind of all say yeah we kind of all believe all past lead the same guy we all believe the same thing I get myself in these conversations all the stinking time as soon as you say you're a pastor somebody wants to tell you what they believe and they kind of, you know, when people talk to you and they're like, right, you know, they, they don't say it, they're kind of like, right, right? Like, y- you agree with what I'm saying? Like, you can just tell in their body language and, you know, you're at some social occasion and you just want to get along with people. And it, that's not the time when you want to be like, well, actually, I think you're wrong. Um, uh, so the the easier thing is to be like, yes, we all kind of can point to this and say, we all kind of agree, we just sort of, our trappings are different, you know, and we call God different things, but basically we just, uh, we, God created the universe, he wants you to be happy, nice people go to heaven. That's sort of the bottom line uh, with moralistic therapeutic deism. Now to flesh this out a little bit and to have some fun, I'm going play to play for you a clip from the documentary where they rehash what I've just said. Um, and um, play some clips from teenagers talking. That sounds a lot like MTD. If I can get this thing to start.
1: The majority of American teenagers, I think, are moralistic therapeutic deists. Uh, Not Catholic, not Presbyterian, not Jewish. The God of moralistic therapeutic deism, I say in the book, is something like a combination of uh, a divine butler and cosmic therapist. It takes care of your problems, it helps you to work out your difficulties, and it doesn't get too uh, personally involved in the meanwhile. Purpose of life doesn't to me. It doesn't really seem to have a purpose yet, but then again, it could for all I know. I really have no clue. It's just to live life to the fullest. Moralistic the therapeutic deism basically believes, uh, sure, God exists, it's theistic, God created the world, God orders the world morally people should be nice and fair and friendly, that the purpose of life is to be happy, be satisfied, that's what it's really about, uh, that God doesn't need to be very involved in one's life, God can sort of be off at a distance, hence the deism, uh, except when one gets into trouble or has problems or needs something solved, then one can call on God and God will sort of hop to it. And teens have a immense amount of faith that God solves their problems, He fixes their troubles, and He makes life work better, He makes them happier. Well, I think God's plan for us is, uh, He bases His plan on uh, happiness and joy, and through that He makes our lives challenging.
2: God is is everything, like I said. Anyway, um, what I think God wants for me is to get married. Cause he wants me to stay a virgin and get married, have, and then just have my beautiful life. I don't know, I guess sometimes in times of need, everyone will, like, the, like, their backup plan is God almost. Like, when they find nothing else, they'll just they'll pray or whatever. And I guess I can do that sometimes, but most of the time it's just kind of like, there can't be a God,
3: because why would I feel like this? But my belief right now in God is that He is around, um, Sometimes he can't change what goes on but he can help. I like politics a lot. I'm a very liberal person, and so I just don't like being a part of a church that I don't like that doesn't want gay people to get married because I don't see it as a religious issue. I see it as it's two people let them be happy. And so I have a hard time being in a place like that where you put rules and stuff that make people unhappy. God, he, it's not really for me to say, but the gist of it, um, he wants the best that we can offer. I mean, uh, the best to your ability. Like, if you're only given so much, you're only required so much. If you're given a lot, then you require a lot. God wants us to be happy and so that i right.
1: Religious traditions are, from my perspective, are really being colonized and corroded from the inside out by moralistic therapeutic deism, and that is, as sociologist, I am uh, skeptical of what is going to be the fiber, the the theological content, or the the intellectual substance of beliefs and practices of people a generation hence. It seems to me that many social forces are basically converging to sort of water down religious faith of all different sorts, so that you no longer have distinctively Catholic and Jewish and, and Muslim and and Wesleyan or whatever, you just have this sort of bland mush of be nice, call on God when you need him. And that is not what these religious traditions really believe. You know, I've come to think that in our culture, increasingly, the language of faith is like a second language. It's like Spanish or French or German. It's not a primary language that people learn and speak. And we know about second languages that yeah, you don't just pick it up by osmosis. You you know, you know need to be around people that speak it. You need to be instructed in it. You need to have practice talking in it. And I think one of the things that that was clear in, our, in what we found is that uh, very few adolescents are having much uh, practice learning to speak their second language of faith.
2: We used to go to church, and then our church kind of, I guess, kind of like fell apart.
0: Okay, um, we'll just stop it there. Um, Just to comment, uh, um, Christian Smith's the primary researcher. He was the guy with the blue shirt who was doing a lot of the talking about the concept. Uh, Listen to that last thing he said, that religious traditions are being colonized by moralistic therapeutic deism. And basically what they go on to say in the book is that MTD is not a sort of religion of its own as much as it's parasitic sort of it sort of, um, it sort of uh, maps itself on to other religions or spiritualities and uh, it sort of, so if you think of Christianity it, it might dress itself up with Jesus and change who he is in terms of the classical teaching um, and then that might happen at sort of the ground level with the sort of laity but then, it starts to evolve and the leadership become moralistic therapeutic deists and the sort of teaching um, um, from the top down starts to sound more and more like this. Maybe that sounds familiar to you. I'm not, saying, not naming any names, but um, it happens, they're saying across the board. So much so that uh, let's skip to the, the uh, very, very last page, 171. I'll read this and then uh, we'll open up for discussion. They're making a really good case here for why we ought to teach our children our, our faith beliefs and not say the naive thing of, well, they'll just figure it out themselves. So we just sort of we'll give them the sort of the uh, Hawaiian poo-poo platter of religions and let them choose. Uh, that that's actually problematic. Uh, and the teenagers who are able to articulate their faith don't do that through osmosis, but because their parents, counterintuitively, because most of us think that teenagers are spend their lives reacting, but this study says that majority of teenagers in the United States these days, when it comes to religion, are not reacting against their parents. They're actually uh, parroting what their parents say for better or for, for ill. And so here on 171, that paragraph starting, starting however, they say, it appears that only a minority of U.S. teenagers are naturally absorbing by osmosis the traditional substantive content and character of the religious traditions to which they claim to belong. For it appears to us, uh, another popular religious faith, moralistic therapeutic deism, is colonizing many historical religious traditions and almost without anyone noticing, uh, converting believers in the old faiths to its alternative religious vision of divinely underwritten personal happiness and interpersonal niceness. And they go on to say, we don't know what this looks like for like say Mormons and Jews because we're not, but these researchers happen to be Christians. So they comment skipping down a little bit to that sentence that says, but we can. But we can say here that we have come with some confidence to believe That a significant part of Christianity in the United States is actually only tenuously Christian in any sense that is seriously connected to the actual historical Christian tradition, but has rather substantially morphed into Christianity's misbegotten step-cousin, Christian moralistic therapeutic deism. This has happened in the minds and hearts of many individual believers, and it also appears within the structures of at least some Christian organizations and institutions. The language and therefore experience of Trinity, holiness, sin, grace, justification, sanctification, church, Eucharist, and heaven and hell appear among most Christian teenagers in the United States at the very least to be supplanted by the language of happiness, niceness, and an earned heavenly reward. It is not so much that U.S. Christianity is being secularized, rather more subtly, Christianity is either degenerating into a pathetic version of itself or, more significantly, Christianity is actively being colonized and displaced by a quite different religious faith. So that's sort of the state of affairs when this was published in 2005. They've done follow-up research in a new book called Souls in Transitions, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of Emerging Adults, which is uh, tracking some of that same generation as they've grown up into their 20s. And the conclusions aren't any, you know, brighter. It's kind of more of the same. You know, uh, 10 years ago might sound a little bit out of date for what I've just read, but they're kind of saying it still looks, pretty, for the most part, the, the same, especially when we start tracking them into adulthood. So what do I want to say? Well, MTD... Uh, moralistic, adoptionistic, therapeutic, docetistic, deism, uh, probably more adoptionistic, though you could probably say the, the lines blur there. It ha- What I'm trying to say is it has elements of both. And a lot of it's grounded on happiness and <coughs> niceness. You know, all dogs go to heaven, sort of. Um, um, most, uh, there is a God it created the universe uh, basically is often a distance has no personal um, interaction with humans unless they like a cosmic butler ask him to through prayer do something and for the most part God does and um, basically, that God wants you to be happy. Remember that girl who said, "Basically, I think God wants me to have my beautiful life, to remain a virgin, get married, and li- live my beautiful life." You know, nothing about uh, there was a the God incarnate who came and lived on this earth, and uh, about 2,000 years ago, died on a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem—a bloody death, spilled blood for us, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, went down to hell. On uh, the third day, rose again for our justification, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, where he continues to intercede our, on our behalf. There was only one Christian kid in the documentary who basically said something like that uh, in comparison to everyone else. Most of what everybody was saying, as Christian Smith says there in the video, is it's sort of this pathetic mush. Uh, and it's not just Christianity, it's invading itself into other religions too, like Judaism, Mormonism, uh, which tends to be a lot more didactic, but still even there, and uh, even uh, Islam in the United States, at least. And Matt, what was the specific question you kids were asked if they were answering? Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, I think it's Yeah, is God probably. Or God? Yeah, there is one part where they do put the questions up, and I forgot what they are. Um, you know, what is it that you... W- w- one of the questions I remember being like, you know, what do you think about heaven, sort of, and so yeah, you're not always seeing the, the questions, this is edited, but um, pick up the book, and they probably, in the, if you go to the appendix of the book, uh, they have about 90 pages of the research, which includes like the, um, the interview questions and stuff like that, someone had a question over here, like that? yeah, I mean, it, it, I remember here in the video, at least there's one part where they ask, Uh, one kid about when they actually put the questions they were asking up there on the screen. One had to do with heaven and hell. And that's the thing is uh, good people go to heaven. Most people are good. It's only the sort of vast minority who's bad. Whereas Christianity from an orthodox perspective is saying everybody's bad. Jesus was good. His goodness was given to us and therefore we go to heaven. Uh, that's the difference between orthodoxy and uh, heresy. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so,
3: but the whole point is, you know, these, the message comes out of wanting to give them something, you know, affirmative, right? Right. And that's where, that's where the corruption
0: Right. Yeah, it's coming from a place of sincerity, like sort of politeness. Is that what you're saying? Like,
3: well, because it is hard.
0: To yeah. Right. We are broken. We are broken, and
3: despite your best efforts, there's 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 a paradox in that. Despite your best efforts, you'll always be broken. But the good news is, you're saved by grace. Bingo. That's why yeah. It had to occur. Yeah. Because we are.
0: Broken. Yeah. But
3: when you see Christians, generations and generations of Christians who commit atrocities, just like everybody, else, we're just like in yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just like in real life, like it. I mean, you you still are subject to your brokenness and your sin. Yeah. It's it's hard, you know. I for myself as a mom. You know, you kind of creep into that message. and you know. well, I'm sorry. You know, this is just life. You know, and that's why we're hopeful, and we're, we're, you know, our message is in Christ Jesus and, and our saving grace because we cannot save ourselves, and that's the end goal. Uh-huh. And your life on this earth may not be that great. <laughs> you know, but it, it, yeah.
0: Boy, would that we were telling most kids that they might actually be happier. <laughs> it's kind of hard, that first yeah generation. definitely yeah oh. it was difficult to talk to my kids about Jesus dying you know I mean but it's adoptionistic to say um oh gosh what was I thinking anyway yeah I, I'm, I'm tracking with you I see another hand back there <laughs>
2: story about um, the rich man that comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, sell everything, Yeah. and he walks away sad, and then, uh, you know, I'm just kind of hanging out, zoning out, and all of a sudden it goes to the next scene, and I I jump up and stop it, and, you know, woke all the kids up and was like, wait, this totally just missed the whole point of the story, and I made them turn to the Bibles, and they're like rolling their (laughs) eyes, I made them, we we read the, the second half of that, you know, that the disciples say, who then can enter the kingdom of heaven? Mm-hmm. Um, and then he says, you know, like, God opens the are possible, and all that. And I just was blown away that, that even that Christian video took that out of context,
0: Yes, you
2: know, and did not follow up with saving the gospel, you know, it's great, and, and it's everywhere.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know... uh I've been studying Galatians because I'm going to preach on it, and it's coming up. And you know, Paul basically says, like, people who teach a false Christian message like, are accursed. <laughs> I mean, he uses very strong language. Um, and I'll just give my uh, a personal story. You know, I came to Christian faith as a young adult in my 20s. And grew up in a new agey kind of environment and on the West Coast where it was totally unpopular to become a Christian. And, um so in order to take on the, and I, I rejected it, but I realized now later in life the message I was rejecting was not the Christianity that I now espouse. It, it looked more kind of like, either a sort of conservative version of moralistic therapeutic deism, which tends to be more about the morality, but still was quite therapeutic and deistic. And I was alienated by that. But it wasn't until I finally heard the gospel, which is what, you know, I'm trying to get across about who Jesus was and what he did for us, that I, I left that sort of new agey stuff, that therapeutic stuff, and then several years as a Christian I started encountering Christians who were saying things that sounded like the the West Coast sort of vibe that I grew up with and I just and, and I hear it more and more now uh, that I'm in leadership and I go to things like diocesan events and whatnot and my constant response at least in my head was I left that I left that I didn't come to this to find it dressed up with Jesus This is a totally different message. And the unfortunate thing is, yes, you're absolutely right. Like, it's gotten down to even the publishing industry, especially with children's stuff. Um, thank God for Sally Lloyd Jones. Do you know who she is? She uh, wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible. And she created it because she looked at the landscape of Christian, uh, material out there for kids, especially Bibles, and thought, This is problematic because usually it's like looking at especially Old Testament as people like the personages of the Old Testament as heroes for us to look up to and emulate. But Jesus says, like, (laughs) like, you know, no, I mean, they they failed. Israel failed over and over and over again. And so I had to come. Um, And that's kind of the message that Sally Lloyd-Jones gets across to children and her work. And there's other stuff out there like it. Um, come back next week where uh, we'll talk about the uh, heresies from the ground up again, and the topic will be theologies of glory versus the cross. Thank you very much. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.